We pray, O living God, that we would experience your word this morning as living and powerful. Not simply ideas that are directed to our minds, but that we might have our eyes opened to the living Christ, the risen, exalted Christ, who comes to us clothed in these words of Scripture. And we pray that we may embrace him in faith and follow him, the lamb, more faithfully. And so, Lord, we plead with you by your spirit. May we see Christ, hear Christ this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is good to be preaching again. I haven't been as preaching as much as I used to. I've been a preaching pastor much of my life, even while I was an academic. And for a variety of reasons over the last two or three years, I've preached a lot less. But uh, what energizes me more than anything is sitting in a living room with 15 students teaching and preaching. So I'm thankful for John uh, inviting me to preach. I'm very thankful to be here I think we've been here four or five times um, over the last few years and have really enjoyed our time here. Thank you for having me. I want to begin with a story um, that you will, many of you will know from C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair, one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia series. Aslan, the Lion King of Narnia, sends Eustace and Jill on a mission. And they, along the way, uh, run into a marsh wiggle named Puddleglum. And they are sent on the mission to liberate Rillian from the enchantment of the Lady of the Green Kirtle. Now, Rillian is the crowned prince of Narnia, and she and he is gone, and it seems that he has been taken by the Lady of the Green Kirtle, who's the Queen of the Underland, and she has somehow hypnotized him. Do we have the pictures to put up? There we go. Okay. And so they're sent to uh, liberate this, uh, to liberate Rillian. They finally make their way down to the Underland, and they find Rillian, and they find out that she, he believes that she, that is the Lady of Green Kirtle, is the kindest, loveliest, most beautiful, merciful woman in the world. And they can't convince him otherwise. But for one hour, every night, he leaves that hypnosis and he comes to his senses, realizes who she is and wants to escape, but he has agreed to be bound in a silver chair where the enchantment, the hypnosis grows as he's in that chair and then he's let go after the hour and he's back to his submissive self. Well, the children get him when he's in the chair and he's screaming, let me go, let me go, and he they finally liberate him. And they're about to leave the underworld as quickly as possible when the lady of the green kirtle shows up. 
and she begins to enchant them. She takes smoke, I'm sorry, powder, and pours it on the fire, and the magic smoke comes up, and then she begins to strum a mandolin-like instrument, and she speaks in sweet, soothing words, and she speaks to the children, and she speaks to Potoglom, and she speaks to Rilly, and she says, is there really a Narnia? Is there really an Aslan? Is there really a world above? And they begin to forget who they are. They begin to forget their mission. And they're taken into this Lady of Green Kirtle's enchantment. But then, all of a sudden, the marsh-wiggled Potoglum realizes what is happening. And he rouses himself from his intoxicated stupor and his hypnotic state. And he runs to the fire and he begins to stamp out the fire with his webbed feet. And as he does, the smoke begins to die down and the children and really, and they start coming back to their senses and they're liberated from the spell. And then they rise up, and now the queen becomes a serpent, her true self. And she begin, tries to slay the children, but Rillian takes a sword and is able to slay the serpent. And then the children and Rillian leave, and the, much of the underworld is now liberated from this oppressive reign of this woman who is a witch, a dragon, and they're able to leave the underworld, and the story finishes. Now, I use that story to illustrate two things about the book of Revelation. First, about what the book is trying to do. What the book is trying to do. It wants to rouse and liberate the church from its intoxication, its hypnosis and enchantment by the magical spell of the Roman economic, political, and cultural idolatry of the day. As a matter of fact, throughout the book of Revelation in 17.2, it speaks of being intoxicated by this Roman idolatry. In chapter 18.23, it speaks of the magic spell that, the, that Roman idolatry has put upon the world. It speaks of being deceived and have their minds closed as a result of the very pervasive and extremely powerful idolatry of the Roman Empire. We know a lot about how that idolatry worked in all these seven cities to whom John wrote. And it was almost impossible to escape the incredible power that this idolatry had on each of these cities. And what John is concerned about is that the church continue to live over against the idolatry of the Roman Empire and witness to the truth of God's kingdom. He doesn't want them, quote, intoxicated with the wine of Rome's adulteries, or doesn't want them to be led astray by Rome's magical spell, or to be deluded, or to be deceived. You see, that's the way idolatry works. It doesn't come up and say to you, I'm going to destroy your life. No, it comes 
and it says, I'm promising you a much better life. I'm promising you pleasure. I want to give you all the desires of your heart. But ultimately, it then captures us and destroys us. That's how idolatry works. And the book of Revelation is concerned in its entirety from chapter 1 to chapter 22 to equip the church living in Asia Minor and to equip the church living today to live over against the idolatry that so easily seduces us. But not only does this story tell us what Revelation is trying to do, but also how Revelation is trying to do it. It doesn't do it by teaching didactically, giving us ideas and directing it to our mind. Rather, the book of Revelation is trying to refurbish our imaginations and to liberate the imaginations from the powerful propaganda of the Roman Empire. In the very first verse of Revelation, it says, the apocalypsis from Jesus Christ or we have it translated, the revelation. And we know now, over the last 50 years, a lot about apocalyptic literature. It was a very, very common form of literature among the Jews. And what we see in the book of Revelation is a piece of apocalyptic literature that is using all kinds of images to refurbish our imagination. In the same way, we don't believe that there actually is a puddle glum when we read the, uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. As we read the book of Revelation, we're seeing all these very powerful and potent images that are being brought into our imagination. And these uh, particular images were well-known images, many of them coming out of the Old Testament, many of them coming out of the apocalyptic literature of the Jews, and many coming from popular culture. So that even though you and I read this book and we say, what is going on? The original readers would have understood many of these images, and they would have been very familiar images from this large cache of apocalyptic literature that they knew about that had been written by the Jews. And the primary point that, this, that Jews wrote this kind of literature in that day was because the Caesar and Rome had so captured the imaginations of people and captured their lives that apocalyptic literature was meant to liberate them from that and to give them a whole new framework and to give them a whole new imagination of what life might look like living faithfully before Christ. Do we need this message today? I believe we do. I believe the pervasive and powerful idolatry of our culture the powerful idolatry of consumerism that tells us life is about how much money you can make and the kind of home you can have and the car you can drive. The power of technology to so easily diminish our lives and allow us to live in that world of social media. The autonomous freedom of our culture. The political ideologies of the right and the left that have literally become religious stories that are encompassing all of life. In fact, we live in a culture rife 
with the powerful idolatries that are pervasive in our lives and come to us in our imaginations through advertising, social media, Netflix, and in so many other ways. And the church today, just like the church in the time of Revelation, was vulnerable to these idolatries and needed a fresh and bracing call to a faithful witness. Now, the problem that poor John has over the next number of weeks is trying to work with images that are not ours. They're images of the first century. They're images that they would have known, but they're not our images. We can quickly pick up the images. For example, in the Chronicles of Narnia, because C.S. Lewis is still pretty close to us. But the images of the book of Revelation are very, very difficult. And so often you have to go and you have to examine Ezekiel or especially Daniel or many of it to find out where these figures and where these images come from and what they're trying to say. And what John does is like gives us one long vision that packs all these images together, one right after another. And they're not being run in any kind of narrative sequence, but rather they're being run in some kind of theological sequence. So what I'm going to try to do for you in the next, oh, 20 minutes is give you an overview of the whole book. Now, you're looking back and you say, no way, he can't do it. The book of Revelation is 10,000 words in the Greek. It's the longest book in the New Testament except for the Gospels. Romans, for example, is only 7,000 words. So I'm going to try to do a 10,000-word book with all these images in about 20 minutes. I'm going to give it as a long, it's a long, continuous vision. It's complex, but it does have a very continuous message that is very potent and very powerful. It begins, maybe we can have the next slide up there. It begins with a picture of the risen Son of Man. The text that was written for you by John is a picture of the Son of Man, and it's very easy to know where this image comes from. The majority of it comes from Daniel 7. And in Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision of four different animals, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and then a beast that is so awful that they can hardly describe it. And then after these four empires, what we hear is that there is a throne room. And the Ancient of Days, God, takes his place on the throne, but there's two thrones set in place. And then one like the Son of Man is ushered in to take the second throne. And that Son of Man is given all authority and power and dominion to establish a worldwide everlasting empire over the earth. And by the time we've reached this time in the book of, uh, in, after Jesus, the Messiah has been identified with that Son of Man. And the Ancient of Days on the throne is God. But what does, that, what does the Son of Man do? He conquers the beast and he establishes his own kingdom over the earth. And this is the picture that John begins with. He begins with the Son of Man, the Messiah, walking amidst the lampstands, the churches. But interestingly, he's described 
not with the characteristics of the Son of Man in Daniel 7, but with the characteristics of the Ancient of Days. In other words, the Son of Man is nothing less than the living God who walks among the lampstands. And he has a message for them. He speaks to seven of them, but, and their situations are all very different, but they're all vulnerable to Roman idolatry for different reasons. Some because of persecution. They're in danger of caving in under that pressure. Others, like the church at Laodicea, because they're benefiting from the empire. They're wealthy, they're comfortable, they're complacent. And should we be reading the book of Revelation as one author entitles his book on Revelation, reading as Laodiceans? Reading as the church that is benefiting from the power of Rome, benefiting in ways that's making it wealthy, comfortable, self-sufficient, and complacent, and they need to be woken up. But all the churches hear the exact same message at the end. The risen Lord says to all of them at the end, to the church that is victorious, to the church that conquers. And the word there is Nike. Recognize that word from, our, uh, from tennis shoes? Nike. To the one who conquers, he will go in to the new creation and uses different images. It's the one who's going to conquer. And this book is about helping you conquer so that you can go in to the new creation. And the book word conquer is using 16 more times in the rest of the book of Revelation. And what that book is trying to do is help the people of God come to the place where they conquer by the time that they die. What does it mean to conquer? If you examine the book of Revelation, it's three things. First, align yourself with the cosmic battle that is taking place between the lamb and the beast. Align yourself in that battle with God's kingdom and the lamb. Secondly, witness to that kingdom in your reign, to God's reign in your life and in your words. And then thirdly, Resist the idolatry of the Roman Empire in order to convert the nations and so that more can enter the new creation. So this is a vision to sustain them in the midst of this idolatry so that they may conquer. Probably the leading scholar on the whole book of Revelation in the 20th and 21st century has said the book of Revelation can be summarized in this phrase. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so the book of Revelation portrays symbolically God's kingdom in heaven in chapters 4 and 5. And then how it comes onto earth beginning at chapter 6 and on through the rest of the book, where the rule of God, the victory of the Lamb, and the work of the Holy Spirit bring that kingdom into the midst of the world. And so there are three sections in terms of the kingdom of God coming from earth, coming from heaven to earth. 
had the next slide. The first, perhaps, is one of my favorite parts in all the Bible. I've preached on this a number of times, and it's the few times when I'm preaching that I've almost been moved to tears. I'm one of those tough, white males, European males, that knows how to keep my emotions in check. But sometimes when I get to these chapters, it's much harder. What we have here in chapter 4 and 5 is a throne room that would have been recognizable to the people of the day because it's similar to Rome's throne room. It's the throne room of an ancient Near Eastern monarch described in Ezekiel 1, Daniel 7, and Isaiah 6. And in chapter 4, there's a picture of God sitting on the throne. And the, the picture that is described, it's a good idea to look at the imagery on the internet for some of this to, to be able to help you. But what you see is God sitting on the throne. What is described is this magnificence of the glory of God as he sits on the throne. It's a picture of God ruling over the world and ruling over history absolutely magnificent. And we're told that the entire creation of the church is worshiping him. But then we're told as he sits on the throne, he's got a scroll in his hand. And in that scroll, there are seven seals, a picture that is going to be important for the rest of the book. The scroll we see in Daniel and other places is well known as the unfolding of history. God has in his hands the unfolding of history. But it's those seals, opening those seals, that control that history, enable it to unfold. And so we hear in chapter 5 that there was no one who was able to open the seals and control history. And we're told that John begins to weep and weep. As he sobs, he says, there is no answer to evil, no answer to pain, no answer to death, no answer to the misery we see in this world if no one can open that scroll. But then the angel taps him on the shoulder and says, look. And he looks. And he, uh, he says, no, he says, look, a lion, maybe Aslan. The Lion of Judah wipes away the tears from eyes and he looks and he sees not a lion, but a lamb, a lamb matted with blood, a lamb that has been slain. He says, look, this lamb has gained the victory through his death and he now holds the keys to history. He can open the scroll. He can deal with the seals. And so what follows after this great news is that the entirety of, of heaven swells with praise. It begins with creation. It moves to the myriad of angels. And then it moves from them to the church. And then back to the creation again. And by the end, you've got the entirety of everything that has been created singing praise to the Lamb who was slain, who now can take the scroll and work out history to the point where all the misery of the world is now done away with. The next slide. In the next section, which is called the end time period, it's really the time 
between the resurrection and the time between the time Christ comes, what we see is the way that kingdom comes from heaven. That picture of the completed kingdom, that picture where God is reigning and ruling. How does that kingdom come to earth? And in the first section, running from 6 to 15, there are only two kinds of messages, only two. And they're purposely interspersed, three of each. The first is one of judgment, then the mission of the church. Judgment, mission of the church. Judgment, mission of the church. And each time they build more and more. The judgment, it begins with the seven seals and then moves to the seven trumpets. What are these judgments? Well, they're not some kind of special, divine, punitive interventions. As one author puts it, they're like a tragically average day in human history. In other words, famine, wars, pain. What we see in the book of Revelation is not God coming in and intervening, but rather God giving humanity over to the consequences of their idolatry. Ezekiel 23 says, I'll give you over to the consequences of your idolatry. Romans 1 speaks of God giving them over to what they want to serve. You want to serve idols? Go ahead. Let's see how it works for you. And what you see in Revelation is not simply these interventions, but you see God saying, you want to serve other gods? Go ahead and see what this looks like. And it was meant to be a warning a warning to people that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And they're intended, it says two or three times, to bring repentance. But by the end of the judgments, it says, but they could not bring repentance. It just made man more and more deeply rooted in their sin. But then what we got is interspersed in the mission of the church. And what we see is three developing, progressively unfolding sections in the mission of the church. A church where their life is to resist idolatry and to refuse compromise and to show in their life there is another way of being human over against serving idols. And they proclaim the gospel with their words. And as a result of this unfolding, and they're, and they're all willing to go unto death, and as a result of this mission, we are told two results. At the end of this section, there's a great gathering and conversion of many who repent, but we're also told that God's judgment comes on all who refuse. And then we finally come in chapter 16 to the end of the book, the end of history. This ending of history in the book of Revelation is told as a tale of two women and two cities. It's more than that, but those are the primary images. There is two women. One is the prostitute of Rome. That is the Rome and the people who have served idols all their lives. The other woman is the bride of Christ, the one who made up of those who have overcome, who've aligned themselves with Christ who have witnessed the kingdom and resisted idolatry. The prostitute is judged, and the bride of Christ 
inherits the new creation. But it's also a tale of two cities, of Babylon and Rome that fall under judgment and the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. As the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven, the loud voice says, now God is making everything new. So there's a sense in which we can describe the book of Revelation with two words. God wins. God wins. He wins ultimately the victory in the battle against darkness and the kingdom and the world is restored to be the kingdom of God. And we're left with the question at the end of the book, which one do you want to be a part of? Do you want to be part of the new Jerusalem or Babylon? Come out of Babylon, it says in the middle of the book, and come into the new Jerusalem. Live a life in which you overcome because the stakes are high. Let me end with summarizing the entire book in three minutes. I've worked on this a lot, refining it to try to nail as best I can. The slain lamb, now the risen and ruling son of man, walks among the churches of Asia Minor and of the greater Phoenix area and says to them, remain faithful and don't be seduced and enchanted by cultural idolatry. Much is at stake. Your own share in the new creation and the conversion of the nations. I am ruling history and have already won the victory in my death on the cross. So follow me. Join me in the cosmic battle for the creation. I am patiently leaving the nations to bear the consequences of their idolatry so that they might see that things are not the way they're supposed to be, and so they might turn to me. But sadly, that won't bring repentance. Only your faithful witness in lives and in words can awaken them from the spell of their seductive idolatry. And I will rouse and liberate many from their enchanted captivity by your faithful witness. But don't be discouraged when it is difficult. Much is at stake. So I want your full allegiance even unto death if necessary. The final judgment is coming when I will destroy all that opposes my rule. Then I will restore the whole creation and you will share in that renewal. That's the message of Revelation. And I pray that here as John has the difficult task of unfolding that book, that the message of the Word of God as you study it together might bring steel to your resolve to give absolute loyalty to Christ and bring tenderness to your hearts for your unbelieving neighbors who are enchanted by the hypnotic effect of dehumanizing idolatry. 
Let's pray together. Living Christ, Lamb who sits on the throne, we bow before you and offer our total loyalty, commitment, and allegiance to you. We are thankful for the victory you've accomplished at the cross as the resurrected Christ are now enabling us to enjoy something of that rule by the work of your Spirit in our lives. Oh God, I pray that this powerful, powerful message of revelation might not simply be a guessing game of what images we can understand, but would be a powerful message that changes our hearts and lives and makes us more faithful to follow you as the Lamb of God. By your Spirit, may that be the reality of the power of your word this morning and for the next number of weeks here at Redemption Peoria. Pour out your Spirit on this place. May it be a holy place where you as the holy God dwell and form and shape your people to overcome. We pray in Jesus' name.